0: This morning we read part of Psalm 89, and this afternoon we will continue, but we're going to backtrack a little bit for the sake of continuity. We'll start at verse 19 and read to the end. Psalm 89, starting at verse 19. Hear the word of God. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also have turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We also read from Lord's Day 52. As providence would have it, the end of the year also coincides with the end of our catechism reading. And so, this afternoon, we will read Lord's Day 52 together. Here we read as follows. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of you, because as our king, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good, and because not we but your holy name should so receive all glory forever. What does the word amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a few more hours, this year will be over. Together, whether asleep or awake, we will be crossing the threshold of another year. The old one is gone. It can never be retrieved. So New Year's Eve always seems to have something solemn about it, doesn't it? When I grew up, my father would often read Psalm 90, and then he would read from the last two chapters of Revelation as the old year transitioned into the new. And there was always something very solemn about that. The passing year is an opportunity to reflect on the passing nature of life. It's good and proper for us to do that this afternoon as well. Now, many people will avoid solemnity like the plague and party away. But as Christians, it's good for us to reflect on the year that has passed, to ask ourselves questions such as, what was the purpose of this past year in our lives? Was it any different from the years that have gone by before? And when you look at all of those years together, you ask yourself the question, what is the purpose of life in the first place? Now, as providence would have it today, we are also at the end of the catechism and its treatment of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, and therefore the catechism, ends with the word Amen. And it explains Amen to mean it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. But is that really true? After all, you prayed for many different things this year, didn't you? And some of those prayers would have been answered as you had hoped, and others were not. And so, what do we make of this word, amen? It is in any case clear when you follow the Catechism's explanation of the Lord's Prayer that our priorities in prayer are often misplaced, and that comes to the forefront in Lord's Day 52 as well. Look, for instance, at the sixth petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How often do we seriously reckon in prayer with the reality that we are under constant spiritual attack, that there are many different ways in which we can be led into temptation? Do we see this as something that actually involves the devil, the world, and our own flesh? Or do we tend to see it all in general terms that, don't really mean that much to us as individuals. The Lord's Prayer wants us to rethink that. It redraws the entire canvas of our communication with God. It makes the scope much broader. It is like the difference between an aquarium and the ocean. When you look at an aquarium, you tend to notice only the fish that are there. And the the Lord's Prayer wants us to see the ocean Now, an aquarium is related to an ocean in the sense that both of them contain fish. But the perspective that you get when you look at the ocean is much broader. And when we look at the ocean, then we see our aquarium in its proper perspective. So there's much that we still need to learn about prayer. In fact, from the vantage point of the new year, it seems that all of life is about learning how to pray. And as we'll see At the end, prayer is really learning to say amen to what God says to us first. You could say that the purpose of life is to learn to say amen. Amen confirms the certainty of God's promise, and it confirms our faith in God's promise. And that's also how we're going to approach all of this this afternoon. So when we turn to Psalm 89, I think about it some more it's difficult to, to know exactly when the psalm was written. It says that it's a maskele, that's a type of a, a musical term, a maskele of Ethan, the Ezraite, which would date it to the time of Solomon. And maybe if Ethan became old, he would have seen the kingdom split. But then when you read verse 38 onwards, it seems to fit with a much later time period, almost as if that part was added later. Now, there's a, quite a diversity of scholarly opinion as to when the psalm was written and uh, whether or not it composes two parts. But in any case, it's clear that whatever, whenever the psalm was written, the fall of the kingdom of Judah was the most extreme example of what it's describing. And certainly that calamity would seem to fit the circumstances described here best of all. It talks, for example, about the king's youth, and if you think about it, the last four kings of Judah were young, and only two of the four two of the four only reigned for three months, and the others reigned for eleven years, which is not that long either. So you could argue, regardless of when it was written, there there could be multiple applications to the Psalm. And the basic point is that the psalmist is lamenting the end, or what seems to be the end, of God's promise on earth. And now God's promise in his mind is very closely connected to the well being of the king. And the kingdom, the purpose of the kingdom in its um, original form was to establish God's reign on earth. And we've often seen that before, haven't we? That in the face of all this apostasy, this idolatry, this wickedness in the nations all around, the nation of Israel with its king was supposed to represent the rule of God on earth the one place on earth that reflected what it was like, what it could be like at its best to have God live with man. And so you can imagine from that perspective the split of the kingdom into the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah after the death of Solomon already would have presented the psalmist with enormous problems. And it only got worse over time as both these kingdoms declined. And as we know, eventually both kingdoms fell altogether altogether. Israel in 722 before Christ, and Judah in 586 when it was overrun by the Babylonians. And so, in our passage from verse 38 onwards, the psalmist laments that God seems to have profaned his own covenant. And this morning we spent um, quite a bit of time talking about uh, the word violate, right? Verse 31, if they violate my statues, and then 34, I will not violate my covenant, you Remember? God had promised, even if the people violate his statutes, he would not violate his covenant. And yet, and yet, it says in verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant, you have defiled his crown in the dust. And in the Hebrew language, that word defiled is um, at its root. The root is the same as the word violate in 34. And and uh, 34 and uh, 31. So what are we to make of that? God says he's not going to violate his covenant promises, and yet it says you've defiled, in other words, violated the crown. Now, it is true that there was a temporary violation of sorts, but it was not the end of God's covenant. In fact, it was part of God's plan all along. In Lord's Day 52, we're reminded that God has power over all things. There's that childlike confession, having power over all things. It's assumed and that echoes in a way, Lord's Day 10, on the providence of God, where it says that all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move, including those sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. And so it was not just the enemies who finally conquered the king. It was God who did. God was the one who defiled his crown in the dust. It goes to show he doesn't really need us, does he? He didn't need his people back then. He doesn't need us today. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God does not need us to be His covenant people. He is not dependent on us in any way, shape, or form in order to fulfill His promises. And God is absolutely omnipotent. As it says in verses 6 through 11 of our psalm, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around Him. O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? He's incomparable to anything or anyone that we know. It says, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. What's Rahab? Well, Rahab could be a number of different things. There's one text in the Bible, Isaiah 30, verse 7, where it refers to Egypt. There's other places where it could also be understood as a kind of a primeval monster of the deep, the embodiment of everything that is frightening and powerful to us. So the basic point is that Rehab is the kind of enemy that is so powerful that, to borrow a phrase from Lord's Day 52, we cannot stand even for a moment. And yet, God crushes this powerful enemy without any effort. The psalm goes on to say, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. God alone is omnipotent. There is nothing that can touch him or his promises, nothing that comes even close. The psalmist understood this, that God is incomparable and omnipotent, and so he doesn't ask, how could you allow this to happen, this catastrophe that has befallen us? He doesn't ask, how could you allow this to happen, but he does ask Where is your steadfast love of old, by which your faithfulness, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? In other words, not how could you allow this to happen, but where are your covenant promises? He's fully aware that God is all-powerful, that God could change his situation in an instant. But the psalmist is concerned that God's promises are being delayed. His big concern is God is not going to get the glory in this situation. How long until God fulfills his promises? Remember that earlier we noted how often we don't see things in their proper perspective. We might, for instance, lament the shortness of life in general. We might pray that God would preserve our health during the years that we have. The psalmist is afraid of the shortness of life as well, but for very different reasons. He's afraid of the shortness of life, not because he wants to live for the sake of living, but because he wants to see God fulfill His covenant promises and vindicate His name. God's people, I had to wait until the New Testament to see how thoroughly God was going to do that. Because every single one of God's promises was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel was humiliated because God took away its king, but the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ, was humiliated on a much deeper level. Read verses 38 to 45 again, and now imagine that this is actually describing Christ. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. In some way, the life and the ministry of Christ seems to be foreshadowed here, doesn't it? Because he is the Messiah, the anointed one. He... Like the king was mocked and humiliated in his office as God's anointed. In the psalm, it's God's king that was rejected, and he was rejected for his own sins, and his rejection was a catastrophe for the people. Christ was rejected not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And what's so striking if you think about this rejection is that God, in rejecting him, was being faithful to his covenant. And once you understand that, it is all so clear Sin requires a substitute. Christ was that substitute. He needed to be rejected because rejection by God is the ultimate punishment for sin. In His rejection, He underwent every rejection that we deserve. In this way, God maintained His promise to punish the sins of His people. He punished them in Christ. So there never has been a time when God was not faithful to His covenant. Even if the psalmist was worried, he couldn't quite see it come together, God was still faithful. And on the one day when it seemed to be, when it seemed that all was lost, God was demonstrating his faithfulness in the most profound way possible. Think about the words of the disciples on Easter Sunday as they walked the road to Emmaus. They were discussing the crucifixion of Christ. He joined them and they didn't recognize him. And do you remember what they said? We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was that king. Doesn't that have the same echo of desperation that the psalm does? What did Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He says it was necessary for this to happen. This was not a detour. This was the plan. God was showing his faithfulness. And listen, dear ones, listen. If God was faithful on the most shameful day of history, will he not be faithful to you? Will he not be faithful to you in all your circumstances? What more could be said about God's covenant than this, that he sent his own anointed to undergo the covenant curses so that we would receive covenant fellowship? God's promise has been utterly vindicated. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, the grave? And by extension, hell. Christ did. He did. He was that king. God's anointed reigns. And yet, as it says in verse 41, he is still the scorn of passers by, even today. There is a tremendous disrespect for Christ, a tremendous coldness towards his word. We live in an age which no longer has awe. Awe is the, the missing, the missing thing in our age. Hatred, hatred all around us, hatred for all that Christ's kingdom stands for. When look at the global church. When you look at the church as a whole, how much of the church is still separated from the world? How much does Christianity still shape our time now that our culture has rejected all that it stands for? How many Christians today understand covenant theology how many Christians today realize that the purpose of life is to learn to say amen to God's promises? And we, are we not vulnerable to these things as well? Don't we need to, le- to pray every day not to be led into temptation? Isn't it true that we are beset by weakness on the inside and by enemies on the outside? The psalm highlights our ongoing need for God's promises. These promises are not contained within the pages of this book. These promises are real and true to you, as true as the day that they were made. We have an ongoing need for God to maintain the covenant And then we reflect on our own life in light of that and we see life is too short. It is too short for us to adequately understand these things, to adequately reflect God's glory. And even if we reflected God's glory well, one life would still be too short. And we didn't do it well, even this past year. How much time have we got left? Through this lament, the psalmist doesn't just complain about the shortness of life in general. He's saying, Lord, life is too short for me to see your steadfast love restored. And at the end of the psalm, he doesn't come to the the end of that yet. There's this ironic contrast. The king who was raised as one who was mighty. See, verse 19, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and you said, I've granted help to one who was mighty. And then at the end, near the end, this Lament, remember how short my time is, for what vanity have created all the children of man. And there's this contrast and tension running through the psalm that cries out to be resolved. And he looks at that and he says, Amen. He has to take it on faith. He has to take it on faith that it is true and certain. God will keep his promises even, even if I can't see my way through That's our second point, that Amon confirms our faith in God's promise as well. We can be sure of God's promise because we are sure of Christ. In Christ, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. In its ultimate form, not just in the form that it had in the Old Testament. After he resisted Satan in the desert, he went on to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Christ resisted Satan. Lord's Day 52 says that we have the sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. Christ resisted them all in His temptation in the desert. And then, having resisted, He said the kingdom of heaven is near, and it was embodied in Him. He embodies God's gracious restoration of His rule over His people. He embodies the priestly offering that takes away their sin, the royal combat against their adversaries, the prophetic word that guides them in covenant living. And he calls us as people in turn to reflect that same threefold office as they willingly live for him, fight against sin and the devil in their own lives and are guided by his word. So when you pray your kingdom come, you are not praying for something in the distant future. You are praying for something that is already here, that has already come into your life. You're praying that God would manifest his gracious promise in your life, that he would fulfill all of what he gives to you in the covenant in you. We're praying for his grace, that his grace to be ruled by him. So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. And as you pray that, you are submitting yourself to that rule. In that sense, you could say that every prayer that we pray has this echo of Psalm 89 in it. It is a confession that God has already brought his kingdom into the world It's an acknowledgement of His power. It is a longing for His glory. It is a desire to see Him vindicated. And in prayer, you experience that. That's what prayer enables us to do. It teaches us not to be self-centered because so much of what we pray for has so little to do with the kingdom. We tend to be far more self-centered in our laments. We look at the fish in our own aquarium and we forget that they're part of a much bigger ocean. We haven't learned to say amen yet. In that sense, the doxology, the conclusion of this prayer, confronts us every time. We say, "For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever." And this prayer, this doxology, confronts us with the thought: Do you really mean that? Is this is really what you want to see. Is that really what you mean? Do you really have this confidence? And maybe the answer is no. Then we should look to Christ and learn to say amen. The Lord's prayers are a plea to God that these things grow in our lives. And the psalmist didn't see that yet. The psalmist was on, on this side of Easter. Um, he, he, he lived before Easter He wants to see a resolution on this side of the grave. But we live after Easter. We know the Messiah whom the psalmist longed for. And so this twofold how long in verse 46 is an encouragement to join in prayer, an encouragement to learn to say amen. But then in saying amen, we also make it binding on ourselves. Woe to us if we pray amen and then live as if God had never spoken. Maybe we look back on this past year, maybe you found that you really struggled with particular sins. Maybe it's just that your prayers were half-hearted, your faith life seems lukewarm, maybe there's no big thing in your life that you're concerned about, but it's more the, the absence of so many other things or the presence of little half-hearted things, and maybe you're just discouraged by it. Look at it through the lens of Psalm of Lord's Day 52. If you struggle with it, that means you don't want it. That means faith is growing within you in spite of your weakness. That means that already now the power of temptation is being broken. Already now the kingdom, the power, and the glory are transforming your life. Satan sees that and he rages against it. He wants to lure you away. And so the sixth petition redirects your gaze to Christ where it belongs. It redirects our gaze back to God's anointed. God can and will bring you the victory even though you are weak. God can and will do that. Christ could and did suffer the punishment of sin on the cross. But He also broke the power of sin on the cross. And so sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will not... Have dominion over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. And that grace is expressed to us over and over in God's covenant promises. And the purpose of all of life is to learn to say amen to that. Ultimately, God is glorified when His people know His promises, when they respond to them wholeheartedly. And that's reflected in verses 15 to 17 of Psalm as well. It says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. God is glorified when we respond to his promises. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. For in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, it says, All of God's promises find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to his glory. Because of the work of Christ, we can pray amen with confidence. It is true and certain that God will overcome evil. It is true and certain that he will bring his kingdom into the world in its fullness. He already overcame evil on the cross. He already is overcoming it in our lives as we are sanctified year by year. He will overcome it in perfection. Christ will reign forever. He is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. So, in a few hours, the end of the year will rush upon us. We'll be another year closer to Judgment Day. You are looking forward to that? Are you calling out to God to show you the final disclosure of His covenant promises? Are you longing for the coming of Christ? Do you crave to see these things fulfilled? In Luke 18, verse 7 and 8, Jesus said, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And now we're another year closer. Will he find faith among the members of the Free Reformed Church of Mandajang? Can we truly say amen to confirm the certainty of God's promises? Can we truly say amen to confirm our faith in God's promises? May it always be so. May we continually desire to see his kingdom, his power, his glory. May he continually answer that desire by revealing himself. Then our whole life will be one answered prayer. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.